Hi everyone. If you don't know me, I'm Steve Brisky. I am uh, one of the elders here, and I oversee the teaching of our church, both like when I teach, also helping others um, teach. And kids, yes, yes, thank you so much. Kids, Children's Church. Uh, so Kevin Crawford used to complain because he would go to these pastor things, and all his pastor friends would be like, oh, Christmas service, you know, like there's going to be 5,000 people there. And, and Kevin would feel sad because being in a college town, the big days are the opposite. It means everyone went home to somewhere that they think of as home. You know, I'm from Cleveland. Uh, and, uh, and so when we come to these, these, these days like Memorial Day, and by the way, uh, it's, it's a day to remember, of course, those who fought and, and died uh, for our country. But we always want to think there's better to say, of course. But there's men and women, uh, even, even here, I saw Shane here and, and others, who they, they fought for us. They put their life on the line for our country and, and our fathers and others. And so we really do want to be thankful um, for what has gone before us. Um, well, by way of getting us started today, uh, <laughs> I have an article that uh, I, I stumbled across this week. If you could read this. Uh, yeah. Humanity has truly lost its ways if we're weaponizing beluga whales. And I didn't, because you know, sharks with lasers, right? Anybody are. Um, and I didn't know whether to be sad that this actually a beluga whale appeared in a harbor in Norway, and, and it appears in this case that the Russians, because uh, it had some markings with the Russian military, have been looking to train whales for, I don't know, some sort of military work. But there's a, a line late in the article, and it was near the end, it was kind of the, the finish up, and it says, always humans find ourselves in an unsettling situation akin to that of the famous Mitchell and Webb sketch. Mitchell and Webb? No, I got nothing. Famous, okay. But wait, are we the baddies? <laughs> that idea that, oh, it must always be someone else who's the baddies, but in the article it talked about how, is it just them or is it all of us? And it has this great line at the end that could have been written in the Bible. It says, so let me say this, we all have. We've really lost our way. We really are the baddies. Humanity, you know, the, for all of us, and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and, and that's important because no matter where you come from today, you know, some of you are, uh, you know, you've been doing the Brookside thing forever, or, or you've been walking with God, you've, you've been a Christian for a long time, and, and others, maybe this is someone new to you, you've been, you've been trying out your faith and, and seeing where this all fits. And sometimes we get this picture that the Christians think they're better than everybody else. But really, as a people, we have to recognize that at whatever way that we're not who it is that we've been designed to be, we're also part of the problem. But here's the bigger picture, because we're about to jump into 1 Peter for the next, I don't know, so many weeks, uh, however long it takes. It's five chapters, but some of those chapters are pretty thick, so. Uh, and he writes this book to Jewish people. So we need a little bit of their history to make sense. And so the real quick version is somewhere around the year 1800, uh, God called a man named Abraham, and his wife Sarah, and tells him to go to the land where I'm in, and he goes to the land, that's now Israel, and, and, and he begins his family there, and that family begins to grow, and they become a people in that land. And, and, and if you know the story, they end up yeah, through a series of circumstances in Egypt, in slavery, and Moses crossed the Red Sea. And somewhere around the year 1300, under the leadership of a man named Joshua, they crossed the Jordan River back into the Promised Land. And there began, and by this point, they've become a pretty large people. 
millions, you know, that kind of thing. And they begin to be the people of God in the promised land. And around the year 1010, 1009, depending on how we date it out, the man David takes the kingship and he becomes king of the people of Israel. And now there are people with a king and they're in their mind supposed to be the people of God. And if you learn the Old Testament stories or maybe you're one of my Bible here, people who's had to read through all this, it's, it's really depressing reading because when you go in the promised land, you have this sense they're going to be the people of God. It's going to be great. But instead it falls apart terribly. They worship every God. They're sacrificing their children to gods. They're uh, it's just... And, and eventually all the other people begin to press in. And in the year 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar's armies, the Babylonians come and they sack Jerusalem, tear down the temple that, that Solomon had built that you were just singing about. Because David didn't get to build it, but David's son Solomon did. If that line didn't make sense, by the way, King David wanted to build the temple and God told him no. And see, there's like, I don't have to build a temple to know you love me. This is good stuff in these songs, by the way, if you know what it's talking about. If you didn't, I just gave you a freebie. All right, so what happens is now that they're in exile, they have to decide, are we going to be God's people? Or are we going to disappear into the nations? And for most of, uh, most of two generations, they are in captivity in Babylon. And then through a series of circumstances, the Persians sent them home and they, they reset up their kingdom. And then if you know anything about the Jewish people, though, their ability to remain people... Because eventually the Romans destroyed uh, Jerusalem again in 70 AD, and they were cast out of the land of Israel about that time. And for almost 1900 years, until 1948, they remained a people without a homeland. This is part of just this big, huge, uh, huge arc of history. But Peter is part of these Jewish people. He's a, he's a Jewish man. He, Walked around with Jesus and, and he learned from Jesus. And, and, and he's writing to these Jewish people who become Christians. And he's going to use this idea of exile in a really unique way. And so by jumping in, let's, let's get going. So 1 Peter begins. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And they, they do it right. Because what's weird about our letter writing is we write our name at the end. So could you imagine if we actually read our letters in order? You had to read the whole letter not knowing who sent it. No, you just go check in the front. So with whatever ridiculousness, they actually say, hey, by the way, it's me, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus. To those who are elect exiles in the dispersion. <laughs> okay. See the, this kind of language here? If the Jewish people, after Alexander the Great had swept through, they began to spread out further and further into the Greek and the Roman Empire because they didn't really get to rule themselves, and so they had to go where, where jobs and, and where life could work. And, and in most of the big cities in the Roman world, Rome, Alexandria, down in Egypt, uh, there were huge groups of Jews who would form and they would they would make a synagogue as their local place of worship and, and so they were called uh, that's called the dispersion they, they were dispersed but he's calling them exiles well they're not exiles anymore that's referring to that piece of their history when they were in exile in Babylon but he sees something really cool because when they were in Babylon they were still trying to figure out how to be the people of God but without their own homeland and in the same way all of us Christians, all who have been followers of Jesus, have this sense that we have this homeland in heaven. But we live out here amongst the people of our world and, and try to figure out how to do that well, right? Like, how do, we, how do we live out toward our world in a way that makes sense? How do we be that people? And that's what this whole book's going to be about. We're going to look at it. 
Because I think sometimes as Christians, we've done really dumb things to try to set ourselves apart. And other times, I think that we fail to set ourselves apart in the ways that would have really mattered. All of that's coming. Let's jump in. In Pontus and, and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia, I think all around that area, most, most of those are in modern-day Turkey. Uh, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, well, the foreknowledge of God the Father. So check that out. Elect exiles according to the foreknowledge. So we're going to stop here for a moment. We don't put a lot, uh, some churches put a lot of work into how much did God elect us and choose us, and we call it predestination, you know, maybe predestination versus free will, and how much is us free will choosing God, and, and you know, because if God didn't choose at all, if God's just a passive observer going, well, we'll just see what happens, then I don't think it's fair to call him God in a meaningful sense. And sometimes I've used this picture, if it helps you, it helps you, but I've now done 30 weddings. And at every single one of the weddings that I have officiated, I've demanded both the bride and the groom say I do. I don't know if you've been to any of those weird weddings where only one of them says I do. And if you've seen the princess bride, if you didn't say it, it didn't happen, right? They have to say I do. They both have to choose. And in the same way, if God did not choose us and we him, then our relationship with him has a problem that would feel the same as if you were at a wedding and somebody didn't say I do. But that can feel weird because if it feels like God chose you, but you over here doesn't like you, that can feel a little like, well, we said God loves everybody, but we didn't mean it. But twice in the Bible, and this is one of them, so we'll point it out, it actually says that it's according to his foreknowledge, which really starts to get a little chicken in the egg. Did God know that you were going to choose him, so he chose you? Or did God choose that you would choose to know him, and then he foreknew, and we just eventually get a little like that? Maybe we'll ask about, about it when we get there. <laughs> but here's what I do want you to get from it, because it is important. God chooses you. God is not just passively going, well, they prayed a prayer, so I guess that's it. And so God is not just a passive observer. He's an active planner. As we go into this book, we have to think of God as having a plan and moving toward us, even as we respond to him. So that being said, we jump into the, the actual text. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again with living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed the last time. If I unpacked every line in that paragraph, we would be here for multiple sermons. And the reason why, and the reason why I'm not going to unpack it, is it's literally everything that's in the book that you're about to read or that we're about to study. And so rather than attempting to do it all right now, I'm just going to let you know that this is the description of everything that's to come in the next five chapters, more or less. But I'll, I just want this to be said. So let's couple things here. Number one, his mercy. Mercy's when a person's done something bad and you choose to be good toward them. Or when a person is undeserving or unmeriting and we choose to bring kindness or well-being to them. Anyway, that's, that's mercy. And of course, we as people, we as a humanity, we as a beluga whale, sharp, lasering people, whatever. In so many ways we see a guy, God, I'll go my way. I'll do my own thing. I've got this. I'm in charge of my life. You're not. And God does not look at us and go, well, yeah. Oh, yeah? Well, forget you then. You know, just a little kick off and go. And instead, the whole point of the good news of the gospel is that God moves toward us anyway. 
And that, that's the mercy, causing us to be born again. So that the idea that we were made, Adam and Eve, and, and, and we were made to be this people that God designed, and of course we rebelled, just eating of the fruit. And, and it says, the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll surely die. Well, this specific sort of death overcame humanity, and it's what causes us to arm beluga whales and do a lot of other prob problematic things. This death that came us needed to be brought back to life. So when we hear the word born again, that, that is a phrase uh, some of the older people will remember. It appeared in the 70s uh, as, a, as a designation point. Because what happened is, everyone will say, yeah, I'm Christian, I'm Christian, I'm Christian. And they're like, yeah, but are you Christian in the sense that you believe and you expect that through Jesus' death and resurrection that you, you would go to heaven when you die and that kind of thing? Or is it just sort of a cultural way of saying that I would vote for Jesus if I had to vote for a God and I try to be a good person? So in the 70s, it became a way of saying, yeah, yeah, but are, but are you born again? I kind of remember I was a kid. And then, of course, the born-again Christians, that's kind of passed by the wayside. But if you're old enough to remember it, that's where it came from. But the phrase itself only appears a couple times in the Bible. It's in John 3 with the, the John 3.16 passage and everything. But here again, this idea that we're remade, set back to life. I was talking with someone, uh, Angie, here today about when we got laser surgery. I got my eyes lasered about 20 years ago. My eyes were terrible. And, and she was saying that it was either her brother or brother-in-law. When he got his eyes lasered, he described it as the visual equivalent of salvation. <laughs> like, your eyes are terrible. I'm used to, like, not be able to find my glasses. And I'd be, like, patting my hands by. I'd be, like, to your right. That's how bad my eyes were. And then all of a sudden, I could see everything. Uh, in the same way that us being born again, being made alive, is supposed to be a rebirth of ourselves. And we'll talk more about that. And then um, finally this idea of salvation. I want to pick that up real quick. Because so often we refer to salvation as sort of the, what will happen when I die? Will I go to heaven? But in the New Testament, most of it refers to the idea that God wants to remake your life. He wants a thing to happen to you now. And across the last year, we talked about, you know, the broken piano that was salvaged and, and restored. And, and we talked about the, the cello that was broken and remade, restored. You know, we talk about these ideas a lot. Salvation is to be salvaged. So let's pick this up. This book is going to say that God is not just a passive observer. He's an active planner. So he mercifully salvaged us and set us back to life with a hope in heaven, both now and forever. And so heaven is not just that God wants to take you there. He wants to actually teach you whatever makes heaven heavenly, whatever's going to make it great, whatever it's going to be like to live there. God wants to teach us how to live that now, despite how broken our world is. Uh, we'll just skip that next slide because I don't have time. Okay. All right. It was going to say the same thing I just said. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, or uh, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor through revelation of Jesus Christ. So at first, God's got this plan, and he's merciful, and he wants to move toward you, and he wants to, to salvage you, and he wants to do all these things. But then Peter says, but there's this thing that's happening to us, is that we do go through trials, we do go through hard things. And I want to actually take you back in Peter's life ways. Because this book is written probably in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. But right around the year 30 AD, somewhere, so about 20, 25 years earlier, Peter had been following Jesus. And Jesus had asked the disciples, who do you say I am? And the big triumphant moment, Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You're it. And Jesus said, good job. Here's my plan. I'm going to die. And Peter, 
being precocious like he was, looks at Jesus. No, Jesus, this is a terrible idea. He has in mind a Jesus who's going to march on Jerusalem and put on a gold crown and is going to win and is going to rule. And at that moment, Jesus looks at him and says, Get behind me, see. Oh, poor Peter, man. He just a moment ago got like the, like the great moment where he declares him to be the Christ, and now he's being called the devil. Oh. And, Peter, and Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, you don't get it. And back then, this is the verse, next slide, it says, Then he told, not just Peter, but to all the disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We talk about this passage a lot. It's one of the arch passages in the New Testament. To understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it is that he's offering, how it is that we could possibly experience the goodness of heaven, even in this rat hole, that we live in with all its brokenness and people walking into the park with guns and, and blue and whatever big and small it is that we fight with. How do we live heaven in the middle of all that? This is his plan. That there would be a people who could suffer any kind of brokenness. That's why that uh, weird line where it said with Jesus, I, I want to believe like you. That might have been a strange line. I don't know if you, if you caught it. Like, am I supposed to actually... Cut myself for you. Uh, what it really means is I'm willing to go through hurt and pain in order to bring wellness to others. I'm willing to forgive. I'm willing to lay down my life. I'm willing, if my roommate didn't wash the dishes, to do the dishes without complaint. I'm willing to make <laughs> them small. Maybe you don't think of doing the dishes as bleeding, but I do. Man, I hate dishes. All right. So. If anyone would come after, this is the lesson Peter had learned. So then moving forward here, so God is not just a passive observer. He's an active planner. So he mercifully salvaged us and, 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 and brought us back to life so that we get a hope in heaven now and forever, that we can really have the heavenly thing. And then borrowing Peter's lesson that he learned from the master all those years ago, that the trials in this life actually help us become disciples who don't just get to experience heaven, but get to give it to others. Well, moving on. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He looks at Jesus, the Jesus resurrected, the Jesus that he personally saw with his eyes go up into heaven and he realizes this one's coming back. And something about our belief in him is supposed to bring us the good life. So jumping forward to the slide, let's where I wrote. So through faith in him and his promises, our souls find the life and well-being they've been searching for. People come, uh, you know, I, uh, I have my counseling degree, and so amongst the ministries we have in their churches, people come in and, and work with counseling and try to figure out, and we do with depression and anxiety and, and, and low-level things like that to help people get up and over. But no matter who comes to me, no matter what they're fighting with, Hiding at the bottom, underneath it all, is a question. Does my father love me? Does he love me? In other words, I know he loves you guys, and I know he loves, but me, what if I'm too sinful? What if I'm too broken? What if I'm the sort that, and, and anywhere I have the suspicion that he's not going to love me, I begin to try to take care of like myself, and it brings to her. Uh, when we work with the college students, one of the normal things would be I'm dating a person who I know is terrible for me. I mean, this would happen a lot when you work with them. Maybe, maybe you remember being in your early 20s, and maybe you dated somebody who was bad for you. But this fear creeps in. 
what if I get rid of them? Get rid of them. What if I break up with them, right? And <laughs> not, the, not the bad kind, you know, concrete shoes, none of that. Okay, but what if I break up with them and nobody comes? What if I'll be alone? You see, I have some love here. I can hang on to this and to trust God that I'll get rid of this relationship that's hurting me, killing me, keeping me from him. What if my God doesn't love me? And what if God's like, yeah, you're just going to have to suffer. And anywhere where I start to fear that my father won't take care of it, that he doesn't have me, I begin to panic and take care of myself. That's a huge part of the narrative. And Peter's trying to convince you that our souls will find life and well-being they've been searching for. This is the overview of the book. This is everything Peter wants you to hear. That God has a plan to like salvage us and, and, and to have us live in him in such a way so we can have So I'm going to roll forward into the second half of chapter 1. And I just have a couple observations. And once again, because so many of these things are going to be picked up in the coming weeks. This paragraph here, because remember he's talking to Jewish people. What he does is he borrows off all their centuries of prophets and if you've read the Old Testament, Isaiah and Jeremiah, that they have been promising for centuries that this is to come. So concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he, when he predicted the sufferings of the Christ. I want to stop real quick. Spirit of Christ? If, this is just a really quick aside for those of you who like this sort of thing. If you're ever wanting to do a study on who is the third person of the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, notice here he's referred to as the Spirit of Christ. It's a really, uh, really beautiful little point that you can pick up sometime. But for the rest of our sermon, we're going to pretend it didn't say that. But you got to believe me. There's gold in that little passage there, but we don't have time. We're going to keep going. And, and he was indicating that he predicted the suffering of the Christ and, and, the, and the prophets predicted the, sub, the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves. In other words, they didn't get to see Messiah, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel, who preach the good news, the gospel, right? To you, the Holy Spirit was sent from heaven, things into which angels walk. He pulls back the camera lens and says, the angels have been sitting into heaven trying to figure out this incredible relationship God has with humans. It's not theirs. They don't have the same relationship with God. Theirs is different. And it says they long to look into the love that God has for you and I and the relationship that he wants to have with us. Angels kind of envy you a little bit. Not in a bad sense. Not green with envy. Just in a, oh man, what is that? I wish I could look into that. So he says, prepare your minds for action. When you, uh, the actual Greek is gird up your mind. Uh, gird up the loins of your mind, specifically. Uh, about a third of the English translations actually have the gird up the loins of your mind. Here's what it is. When, uh, when you have the tunics and the, the robes that they would wear, it's really hard to run. And if you need to fight, it's virtually impossible, right? Men, if you've ever worn a dress, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> Ladies, I understand. What, but... Uh, Okay, so what they would do is they would take and they'd pull them up and they'd tie them in a knot like right here so they could free up their legs so they could work, right? So if you were going into battle or, or you just needed to run, you would just gird, gird up your legs because you tied up all your clothes right around your waist so you could roll. He says to do that to your mind. Get it ready to go. So, you know, be battle ready. That's what I have here. The first thing, how do we do that? Because in this paragraph, he's going to describe how we be all these things. Get your mind ready to go. Your mind is always looking for the answer to how do I get the good life. 
It's always looking for an answer. And if you're not careful, you'll allow it to roll to places that don't really work. When we try it. I mean, I always joke about you know, binging Netflix or, or uh, you know, maybe we drink too much, we try drugs, we try sin, we try whatever. And I don't mean to say this one's good, this one's bad. And, and I watched a couple episodes of Parks and Rec myself last night on Netflix. I just like the show, it's a good one. But what I'm trying to say here is if I'm not careful, I will allow my mind to get lazy and flabby and say, oh, it's probably anywhere. And I start to reach out to more and more things that don't work. But if I keep my mind focused on what really gives life, my relationship with the Lord, my relationship with you, my relationship to things that matter, it doesn't mean I'm after them all the time. It just means that I keep my compass pointed toward how should life work and how do I want my life to work. Have a battle ready now. So then to go back to that paragraph, it says, uh, therefore, preparing your minds for action, it says, get your minds ready, set your hope fully on the grace. I want to talk about grace really quick, because if mercy is, you know, you, someone giving you good despite what you don't deserve, right? So, you know, you, you didn't deserve it. So grace is this overabundance of goodness poured in without regard to merit. That God loves you. God is thrilled about you and wants to move forward to you in grace because God loves you and so his grace is such that anybody, it says for whoever would receive him, then he gave the power to become sons of God, that's in John, that God wants to move <laughs> towards you and make you his child and, and love you and, and, and Peter says that when you set your mind on that, that you keep your mind not on all the broken things that you've been trying to get life from, but on him and saying God how do I get life from you and we'll, we'll talk about that's coming in Peter See, this is all for you. So, set your uh, mind fully on the grace. That was the second point, right? So, if I have a battle-ready mind, I'm going to begin to hope that life will come from His love and grace. And then He's going to contrast that back into my passage here. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Some of us, I mean, became a Christian when I was a kid, and so I've lived with sort of the kingdom of heaven in mind, and yet, of course, I've done a lot of sinning. I've done my own dumb stuff. Because, see, the passions of my brokenness, I really thought I could make life better than God makes. But some of you, you maybe became Christians later, and you really remember that it wasn't just a bunch of sinning decisions you made. It was a whole lifestyle of, this is how you get life. Maybe it was a whole lifestyle of walking down Worcester Street, going to the bars, hoping to find someone to be with or enough to drink that you can make it go away. Or maybe it was something other where it's, and it's not like, I'm not here to say if this one's good or bad or you dirty sinners. That's not what I'm trying to say. Instead, I'm trying to say, examine whether it works. That we tried futilely to try to get light from things that we're doing and we did it over and over and over and over, no matter how hard we tried it. It didn't bring the satisfaction, the well-being of life that it brings. He's like, don't, don't live that way anymore because it can't work. Heaven has a plan for you. So that's the third one. So don't, the way we, the way we live this out is we keep battle-ready minds, that we, that we think about life in terms of how God designed it, how can we get life that way. We don't trust our flesh's answers for life. And then finally, he says this, and this is the last section of the day we want to talk about. He says, but in all you do, if you are called, I don't want to pick up where I, where I leave off. Do not be formed the passion of your former ancestors, but as he who called you is holy, you also 
be holy. In all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now I need to stop. Because most of us hear the word holy and think something like, I am too pure and moral to even, I don't, my feet barely touch the ground actually. And, and, the, and the icons, you always have two fingers up. I don't really know what it means. Like that. And then we even start to, all oh, that person thinks they're so holy. And we begin to talk about it like it's a bad thing, right? But I want you to hear the word just means set apart. It means, uh, and set apart specifically for a purpose. So whatever my purpose was, so, uh, I used the toothbrush is great. You buy a new toothbrush, it is set apart. It is not even just set apart for mouths. It is set apart for your mouth. I've kind of weirded out by couples who share toothbrushes. They kiss, I get it, their mouths touch, whatever. No, no. It's my toothbrush, it's your toothbrush. You know what I'm saying? But eventually, the toothbrush comes to a spot where it's all too late, like the bristles are all pointing every which direction. And at that point, you use it to scrub grout and stuff like that because you don't care. But notice, once it is no longer for the purpose of your mouth, it's not set apart anymore, right? And you go get a set apart toothbrush. So toothbrushes can be holy. I mean, if you want to, I guess. Because I'm really trying to make the word more pedestrian. It's not a special word. He's actually just trying to say, the people who love Jesus, they need to recognize that they're for something. That God is for us, and he wants us to be for him. So we're going to look at set apart for a moment. And I'm going to go quickly through what Peter puts, because here's my story. I was a kid. I loved God. I was super excited about it. I went to Christian school from first through sixth grade. You know, wearing uniforms. And I had a deep, profound sense of liking God, but I had another thing that had grown beside it. A deep and profound pride at being better than you. I did. And the 80s were in full roar, and, and, and some people were trying to dress like Madonna, and some people wore ripped jeans and had spiked hair, and they were all sinners and worldly in my sixth grade mind. <laughs> And when I switched to public school, I had this mind about what it meant to be set apart. That had nothing to do with real set-apartness. I really thought it was the clothing style I wore. As though somehow dressing in whatever was stylish in the 80s was worldly and sinful. Ripped jeans, not ripped jeans. Did any of these matter? They did to me. Spiked hair, sinners. That's how broken the picture was. Of course, it was a kid's picture. But when I went to junior high, what happened was I couldn't live that out. I felt so weird. And, and, and of course, it drew a lot of negative attention to me. And then, of course, they called me weird. And I didn't know how to fit in. And so what I ended up having to do is pick up God and put him on a shelf over here. And then go back and try to live life because I didn't know what to do with God. Because my picture of set-apartness was so broken. But if what we really mean by being set-apart comes into play, our world will have to handle it differently. So let's look briefly at what Peter puts into play. So number one, and if you call on him as father, because we want to love him, right? So he talks about that father relationship, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We're in the exiles in this strange land. We can't just go back to some, we can just don't go live in heaven or make these little holy huddles and try to like keep all the bad non-Christians out. Like that kind of stuff is garbage. And every time Christians do it, we destroy one another. It doesn't work. But rather we think of ourselves as living out amongst the world, but with an identity there. 
So knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver as gold, but rather we are ransomed with the precious blood of Christ Jesus, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We recognize that there's that Jewish picture because they had seen the sacrifices that were supposed to work. And then the disciples saw Jesus as the one who really takes the sin of the world. And they realized that the first thing about being a set apart people is, first of all, that citizens that we're citizens of another world. Really are. We think about well-being in terms of heaven and not in terms of food and drink and, and pleasure. Although those, those do bring some measure of life, but when they become the life, we get to change. And then it says this. It says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In other words, Jesus. And it was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So the second thing that makes us the set apart people is who we worship. We actually worship Jesus. You, you saw a bit of that. And I don't think our world cares. The Greek world cared a little bit more because they thought really the worship of the gods was, was the deal. Did you know they called Christians atheists? Because they wouldn't worship the gods. They just had their one God. Anyway. Uh, but we, we worship the crucified and the risen Christ. So to be set apart people, we just think life comes from God and, and, and food and drink and those things, they're nice, but they can't be my life. And we worship God. And then he says this thing. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another from a pure heart. This is the first real behavioral action point. Think for a moment all the ways that Christians try to make themselves appear set apart. All of the, the rules that we broadcast out into our world. Christians don't, Christians don't, Christians don't. And, and we are taught, we're thought of as the people who don't. And we have things we don't do. But the real action point, the one that must be there. And if it's not there, then we're frauds. Jesus said the whole world will know we're his disciples by our love for one another. And if that point were practiced, and that point alone, we would already be well on our way to be the set-apart people. Now, there's more. We'll, we'll look at those things as we go along. But we need to start where Peter starts, where John starts, where the disciples start. And that is that the set-apart people are filled with real love. Think about the ways that we fail to love one another. The way we let our words hurt one another. The way we ignore one another out of inconvenience. The way that we hurt and break. And when you hurt me, the way that we fail to forgive one another. The way that we don't reconcile. These things, these are what make us the set of our people. When we are forgivers and lovers and carers and lifters of one another. And honoring one another over ourselves. This must be our identity or we have failed in the first identity of the set of our people. Citizens of another worldview, we think about well-being coming from a different well. It's not that we think that food and drink and, 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 and pleasure are bad. It's we think making them our life will not work. And rather, we're worshipers of Jesus and lovers of one another. And then finally, uh, from that, go back one slide. Go backward, actually. He said, because all flesh is like grass and his glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flowers fail, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the good news taught to you. So one last one. Man, you guys tell to come up and be like, we live with the greater view. We know we're going to die. 
We know that life's going to end. And the Christians really believe that God has more planned and that death is only sleeping and it's like passing from one room into the next. And when we live with the end in view, we cease to think of this life as just living day after day. And when we have this set apart view in place, what happens is we stop wasting our lives. For many of us, we avoid thinking about death. It feels scary. And I don't like to think about that. And I just try to stay here. But what ends up happening is we make our life smaller because we live in the tedium of our life. But when we recognize that a grave is coming, I've knocked out 46 years. I've only got 30-some left. Maybe I don't know. Started riding a motorcycle this week. It could be left. I don't know. <laughs> if you cannot live your life with your funeral in mind, then you're afraid of death. If you can't be thinking, what do I want said? And what do I want uh, mourned about me? And what do I want remembered about me? And if you can't do that, it's because you don't really trust what God has planned for you. The set-apart people live with death in view. It's coming. Whether near or far, it'll be there. And I have hope. Not that people will remember that how less I sinned or whatever, but rather how much I loved how much I cared, how much of God I was able to help them see. And not just like the facts of God, but rather the joy of God and the love of God. And that's what I would long for us as a set of our people to be. This is the overview of what is to come over the next coming weeks. And we hope you keep joining us because First Peter is an amazing book. So today we have communion. And when we, when we come to communion, we like to remember a lot of things. We like to remember that he does live in us and, and to remember that he died. But the word communion comes from the idea of being a community. <coughs> that today, I would like you to remember just what we talked about here. Our Lord who died so that he could make us his people. So as you come forward, I want you to ask him, Lord, in what way have I not loved? In what way have I been living my life for pleasure and foolish things? And in what way can I live life through you? If you're not a believer today, this is a, this is a ceremony for Christians and it's very sacred to us. And we want to ask that you would honor us by not taking communion. And honestly, sometimes people are like, wow, it feels so weird. We're going to think you're amazing. If you don't stand to take communion with us, we recognize this because you're a person of honor and integrity, and we think highly of that, not only of that. We're just honored you're here with us. So if you would come um, on this side, because we have uh, you know, some really severe uh, dietary things. On this side, Amy made some uh, uh, cheese whips. Uh, for, uh, so it was me dairy, but it is utterly altogether gluten and bread-free. And on this side, is gluten-free bread in the middle. Uh, we ask that you not dip bread into those middle glasses because, again, some of the people's dietary restrictions are pretty severe. We're so thankful you're with us today.